1942, all the men in Germany were gone, all but a few. Fritz Müller was one of them. Why aren't you at the front? asked the café server who filled his coffee. Fritz tossed a coin or two down on the table with calculated nonchalance, pretending his life did not depend on it. I'm stationed at the home front, he said. He was acutely aware of his slightly dark skin and the black curls hanging down his forehead. Well, the server said with a withering stare, some men have all the luck. Lucky indeed, Fritz thought. Luck was something that he had come to rely on, desperately. Just then, the cafe door opened and in walked a stunning bombshell of a woman with full lips and high Aryan cheekbones. She promptly crossed the floor and sat down at Fritz's table. Another coffee and two pastries, said the bombshell, pulling out a cigarette. The server hesitated. You don't mind if I smoke, she asked, which sent the server scurrying back to the kitchen. Do you think she knows? She whispered. Knows what? He asked. That I'm a married woman, she said. I do hope you realize the gamble I'm taking at seeing you, Fritz. He did, more than she knew. His life had become a gamble, for he was not Fritz Mueller, but Isaac Behar, a Jew. Well, he said, drawing a sip of coffee, I hope I'm worth it. I chose to begin with this story, which feels like a Hollywood plot, although it is based on a true story, because it illustrates the links to which Jewish men in desperate straits clung to their masculinity and refused to break under oppression. Here, Isaac, a.k.a. Fritz, defies all sense of self-preservation in order to ask out on a date a German saleswoman with whom he had fallen in love. He refused to let the regime dictate his masculinity. Now, most men were not so lucky nor so handsome as Isaac, nor were their stories so fit for a Hollywood script, but Jewish men across the board faced the odds with grit and determination, and today we are going to see how. How did Jewish men in Germany bear up when the regime came for them and their families? How did they maintain their manhood as they were reduced to animals in the eyes of their oppressors? That's what we're talking about on today's Short Shorts episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new Patreon patron, Preston Ray, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a great podcast called The History of Germany, which tells the story of the German peoples from the earliest days up to the present. If you're enjoying our Sex in the Third Reich series but want to see how it fits into the bigger picture, you'll love the history of Germany. Veteran podcaster Travis Dow speaks the language fluently, translates German podcasts such as The Secret Cabinet, and has his finger on the pulse 
of Germany today. If you like expansive histories that fit all the pieces together into a single narrative, you will love the history of Germany. All right, let's start the show. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short Shorts! Short, short. Folks, this is going to be another Short Shorts episode that's nearly as long as a deep dive, but I have no time to edit this down. Things have been crazy around here, what with the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic coming to the United States. And in any case, this story is worth the length. So here we go. Last time, we heard how the 19th century had seen Jewish men transition from an intellectual form of masculinity to a martial one in an attempt to earn social inclusion through military service. Their hopes were dashed, however, when all their medals and honors paled before a rising tide of anti-Semitism. After Kristallnacht, there was no more pretending that Jews could persuade their Aryan neighbors that they too were true Germans. The persuasion game was over, and the game of cat and mouse had begun. Those who looked Jewish, quote-unquote, that is, those who fit the caricatures published in anti-Semitic newspapers, were most anxious. But even those who could pass for Aryans harbored a constant dread of being discovered. Isaac Bihar had lost his parents, and so he spent his days in cafes reading the newspaper, pretending to be Fritz Müller, a soldier stationed at home. Isaac may not have fit the caricatures, but nor did he fit the Aryan posters either, and that made it all the more risky when he approached a saleswoman with whom he had developed an infatuation. He told himself, you're crazy. You see this woman through the eyes of a totally normal young man, but you are a Jew, a Jew in hiding. But in this moment, I was suddenly a totally normal young man. I took my heart into my hands and asked the brunette Dream if she wanted to have a cup of coffee with me one day. Her name was Betty, and she was German. Aryan German. Now why did he do this? Why did he ask her out, knowing if she discovered that he was Jewish, it might spell his doom? It seemed crazy. And perhaps it was. I mean, love makes you crazy, that's what they say. Or perhaps, in a crazy world, what he was craving was a sense of the normal, and a date would provide that respite. Or perhaps he'd had enough of the Nazi propaganda that systematically feminized Jewish men and wanted to prove his masculinity by seducing one of their own, in a kind of romantic revenge. Or perhaps it was all simply a survival strategy, a calculated risk in a desperate bid to obtain protection. He had been wandering, homeless, sleeping in bombed-out houses, and for food he had been relying on Stamessen, which was a basic watery soup that restaurants at the time were required to provide free of charge without ration cards. And wherever he went, he was acutely conscious of sticking out like a sore thumb. The days passed and I could not help noticing that I was starting to look shabby, life-threateningly conspicuous. My already slightly dark-skinned face failed me for passing as Aryan, and now the black, greasy curls hanging down my forehead, as my last visit to the barber had been quite some time ago. 
So just a shabby appearance was apparently already enough to put him in the crosshairs. And his clothing must have been an issue as well. Now the account that I read doesn't mention what he wore, but I imagine he must have gotten his hands on a military uniform of some kind. Not only did he need it for his cover story, but he would have stuck out even more without one. I mean, almost all men in Germany at this time were in uniform. If they weren't in the colors of the various military branches, then they were in the olive of the Reich Labor Service, or perhaps even in the blue of something called a flag supporter, which I read a reference to that, and I gather it must be a uniform expressing some kind of moral support for the war. Civilian clothes had by then become a rare sight in Germany, so those who could not pilfer a uniform of one sort or another were already identifiable as suspicious, and police could therefore easily spot you, and when the air raid siren sounded, and you crowded into bomb shelters to weather the explosions, and you sat there out of uniform, you might find others glaring at you, wondering why you were not at the front. Some, like Hubert Salzmann and Eugen Hermann Frieda, even went so far as to dress as women in order to avoid such gendered gazes. Isaac Bahar did not. In his guise as Fritz Müller, he responded to such gazes, claiming to be a soldier stationed at home. So, when he asked his crush Betty the saleswoman out for coffee, he likely did it as a man in uniform. Now, Betty was married to an officer in the German Wehrmacht army. And not only this, but she was also much older than this Fritz as well. Thirteen years older, to be exact. To her, he was just a boy. Now, why did she agree to see him? I mean, three years into the war, men were in scarce supply. So was she just looking for a boy toy? Or was she overwhelmed by the war and looking for a distraction? Or did she doubt the propaganda and was looking for a way to rebel? It's hard to know. We'll come back to the story of Isaac and Betty later. But for now, it's time to get a broader picture of Jewish men in Germany during the war. Most other Jewish men were far less fortunate than Isaac, but no less in danger. They lived in fear from the very start. Willie Cohn, for example, wrote in his diary, Woke up this morning at three in the morning, bathed in sweat. I dreamt I was in protective custody. And similarly, Martin Hausner wrote, I cannot live and I cannot die. The ground began to burn under my feet. Fear was in the hearts of all Jews. Even when you were not being physically assaulted, there was still the fear of it, a constant dread that wore at your nerves and slowly ground you down. Moreover, there was emasculation. The Nazis systematically attacked the Jewish sense of manhood. Not only did their propaganda feminize Jewish men and call them women, not only did they ban Jewish men from the army, take away their arms, and discredit their war medals, thus depriving them of all outward connection to military masculinity. But even beyond this, they undermined their role as breadwinners in the family. Masses of Jewish men found themselves unemployed and thus reduced to dependence, dependent upon their wives, dependent upon perhaps even their children for the food that they ate. So how do you cope with such a thing as this? 
How do you face it like a man, as they say, instead of collapsing into a spineless pile of jelly? Well, naturally, the first thing that we might think of, not being in this situation, is that, you know, you should fight back. You know, Rambo style. You stand up for yourself and you fight back. Well, some did. Over a hundred Jewish armed uprisings challenged the Nazis, in fact, and did so with great courage. But none managed to turn the tide. Some Jews also became partisan fighters, especially those in occupied countries like Belgium, France, and Poland. The 2008 movie Defiance dramatizes the fight of the Bielski partisans of Poland, for example. However, Jewish armed resistance was a precarious prospect, to say the least. Those in Germany had been disarmed by law, and few were willing to risk their necks to help them obtain arms again. Meanwhile, those in occupied countries had a hard time of it because they could not sneak home or move about publicly like non-Jewish partisans because of their appearance. Furthermore, they often had to hide their ethnicity because there was no guarantee that their fellow partisans would not be just as anti-Semitic as the Nazis. In fact, in areas with high endemic anti-Semitism, like Eastern Europe, many were forced to form all-Jewish partisan groups just so they could trust each other. But even this was really a case of out of the frying pan and into the fryer, because all partisan groups everywhere rely on locals for food and information, and an all-Jewish group in an endemically anti-Semitic area is going to find this in short supply indeed. Ultimately, it was just exceedingly difficult for Jews to mount armed resistance, and this was for two main reasons. First, the overwhelming opposition against them, and second, the short supply of aid just mentioned. And this meant that those men who took the Rambo approach were more likely to widow their wives and orphan their children than to help them. Life is just not like a Hollywood action movie, unfortunately. A more realistic prospect to help their wives and children was to endure. Rather than going out in a blaze of masculine glory, men had to survive in order to be able to protect their families when the time came. And this often required making unthinkably hard choices. It might even mean actually separating from your family in order to help them better from afar. In the early days, Nazi violence targeted men much more than women, and so staying with your family was in fact putting them in the line of fire. And consequently, many men made the hard choice to emigrate in order to then work on getting their family out of Germany after them. And later, when emigration was no longer a realistic option, many men chose to submit to labor camp service. Now, this was not an act of meekness, but a hard choice calculated to help their families. The hope was that if they went along with it, their family would be spared. Because remember, no one at the time knew the extent to which the Nazis would go. I mean, today, we know with 2020 hindsight that boarding a train meant certain death, but no one at the time knew that. Many men, dismissing any rumors to that effect, made the hard choice to board a train in order to avoid an even worse fate for their families. It was a sacrifice, and it was manly. Meanwhile, those who could not emigrate and who had not yet been called to board trains found ways to support their families. Unemployed and at risk of beatings if they went outside, 
There was little that they could do for them outside the home, but within it, they could still be of service. Many became educators. With their children expelled from school, they took over where schooling left off. They started teaching their own children. And somewhat ironically, the Nazi persecutions ended up enabling men to actually grow closer to their families by having more time to spend with their children. Men were also models of perseverance and stoic dignity for their families. One father, Alfred Schweren, wrote poignantly to his daughter telling her to be strong. Should I ever get arrested and sent to Dachau, do not be afraid and do not get frightened by anyone. You know I have participated in the World War. I have also told you many times that I had always been in the first line of combat and that even though I had been injured several times and contracted typhoid in Russia, I never had the feeling that something bad could happen to me. Conversely, I felt the confidence that I would return to my home healthy and safely. This feeling did not betray me, so listen then closely. Should I get arrested and transferred to Dachau, stay calm and wait. As confident as I had been in 1914 to 1918 that I would return home, as strongly as I declare to you today that I will also endure Dachau and return to you. In the end, Schwerin was in fact sent to Dachau. And then, for men like him who were sent to the camps, the manly response was to defy your oppressor, if not physically, then psychologically. Of the experience of going to the camps, Alfred Schwerin wrote, Keeping your composure was the best thing to do. Do not let them see into you. And everyone kept their composures, these poor tortured and hounded people. Muted and stiff, they were sitting and gritting their teeth. You had to endure and not break under the tortures. But it wasn't easy. Nazi camp authorities specifically challenged their masculinity. Often, instead of inflicting only physical beatings, which allowed one the opportunity to bear up under manly pain like Rambo or James Bond, camp authorities also subjected them to humiliation. And they were especially hard on veterans, mistreating them to further delegitimize their military service. But this actually ended up backfiring for the Nazis. Jewish prisoners, adopting a specifically military sense of honor, came to see their oppressors as dishonorable, unsoldierly. Violence against the defenseless was cowardly, and so they lost all respect for their oppressors and in fact bolstered themselves knowing that they were on the honorable side. And they supported themselves in this by referring back to their wartime service. Nothing was more common in the camps than to hear Jews trading war stories. And they interpreted their terrors in the camps in terms of the trenches as yet another trial of manhood under fire. Meanwhile, those Jewish prisoners who had never internalized such a military masculinity had a much harder time getting through it. Alfred Schwerin says he never saw so many men cry. Those with military discipline endured more resiliently in the camps, though it was easy for no one. Now, if men did not submit to boarding trains to the camps, their only other option for resistance was to go into hiding. Jews referred to this strategy as the U-boat, comparing their existence to a submarine only surfacing to change shelter or find food. Again, the object was to survive and find some way, somehow, to return and aid your family. One way was to hide in plain sight. 
believe it or not, many Jews actually served in the Nazi military. I'm not kidding. They were banned from it, but managed to infiltrate its ranks anyway. Now, this was easiest at first, as half-Jews were actually originally allowed in deployments against France and Poland. Now, in addition, many full Jews obtained forged documents to pass themselves off as soldiers. And in fact, in all, at least 6,000 Jews and tens of thousands of half-Jews found themselves on official Nazi military rosters in one way or another. But passing yourself off as a soldier was no mean feat, Karl Brumer recalls the challenge. I learned how to walk in a uniform. Then I had to learn by heart all the Wehrmacht jargon so that in the worst case I could address my superior properly and most importantly greet properly, which was not that easy. Now those who did this successfully no doubt quietly undermined their unit, maybe blunted the worst of its atrocities, or at the very least managed to endure for the sake of their families back home. Meanwhile, there were also those who feigned military service without actually taking part. Remember our romantic hero from the opening of this episode, Isaac Bahar, a.k.a. Fritz Mueller? He was one of these. So how did he fare during the war? To recap his story thus far, after wandering homelessly like a mouse evading a cat, he had become infatuated with the married Aryan-German saleswoman Betty and dared to ask her out to coffee. So what happened next? Well, she said yes, she met him at the cafe, and from there, they struck up a relationship. And after a few more dates, he moved into her place. At Betty's, I had it splendidly. Not only did I have a protected ceiling over my head, but a beautiful woman as well. I even wore custom-made suits. I enjoyed the luxury, and Betty had her fun in dressing me up nicely. Now, I know what you're thinking. This can't last so long, right? Anyone who has ever seen a Hollywood romance knows precisely what's likely coming next. Eventually, she's going to find out about his lie. Then she's going to kick him out. Then he'll have to prove himself to win her back, perhaps by turning himself in to save her from suspicion. And finally, tragically, she'll mouth the words, I love you, as his train is departing. However, once again, life is not like a movie. As it actually happened, when Betty found out that he was Jewish, she didn't care. She continued to harbor him anyway, and he depended on her until the end of the war, all the way up until the Red Army had entered Berlin. And he lived to write about his experience in his memoir, Wer spricht mir, dass du am Leben bleibst, or Promise Me That You Will Stay Alive. The book is only available in German, unfortunately, which is why my account here is somewhat limited. I'm dependent on a summary of events in a thesis by historian Sebastian Hubel, which is also where all of our quotes for today have come from. But in any case, I've striven to keep all the details of Isaac Bahar's story accurate to the best of my knowledge with the information that I have, embellishing only to flesh out the cafe scene, for example. Isaac Bahar was lucky, and for many Jews who survived, it came down to luck in the end. However, all Jewish men, lucky or not so lucky, endeavored to face their oppression with manliness. Some fought back, though the odds of making a difference were slim. Many others made hard choices and sacrificed themselves for their families. Some went into hiding. Others actually served in the very military of their oppressors. 
and a very large portion of them eventually found their way to the camps and then to the gas chambers. But in all of this, they endured violation, humiliation, and emasculation, and strove to resist with discipline and dignity. That is how Jewish men endured. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a partisan, boldly plotting resistance, or a doting parent reading to your child as the world outside goes to hell. Or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, next week, there's a bit of a break, no episode next week, but next month we'll be looking at gender in early America, like colonies era and later into the United States. The schedule may be a bit rocky, however. Things have been crazy here with the COVID-19 pandemic. Rachel and I have been scrambling to get our exchange student on a plane back to his home country, and his home country is not making it that easy. And it's really only by the grace of luck that I've managed to get today's episode out at all. So we'll see how next month goes. Until then, everyone, remember to stay home, practice social distancing, and for crying out loud, wash your hands. It's all very inconvenient, I know, but well, just remember that people have had it worse in the past. I wish you all health and safety. Until next time, I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.